you. Well, good morning. My name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, man, it's so good to see you. Uh, I'm part of our preaching team, and um, I, I, my guess is some of you are in a similar spot as me. I, we just sent our kids uh, back to school this week, so it feels like summer is officially over. Uh, of course, if you walk outside, it doesn't feel like summer's over, but uh, in terms of the flow of life, and so it's kind of gotten us reflecting as a family about this summer. What was the summer like, and what were some of the highlights? And one of the real unexpected highlights for our family was uh, getting to watch the Suns through the playoffs. And uh, wasn't that fun? So, so, see, some of you like old, long-time, cynical people who, I, 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 let me just say this, like, what did you expect? Did you expect them to go from like really not very good to winning at all? Right? People like, they choked. They didn't choke. You have to be expected to win, to choke. They didn't choke. They're a young team. They're doing great anyway. So I, don't get me fired up on that. But uh but we just had a, we had a blast watching them and kind of get into it, and, and the kids all got into it. And, uh, you know, there, there's something about the broadcast that I hate and something that I really love. So the thing I hate is in the broadcast, what you notice is usually like after the first quarter or the, the third quarter, they'll, they'll pull the coach out of the huddle and make him talk, do an interview with TV. It's like, guys, this guy's busy. He's in the middle of the game. Like, this is so stupid. What are you making him? And, he, and because he's distracted, it's like, yeah, we need to play tough defense, and uh, we're trying to win. And you're like, boy, this is a pointless interview, right? I just find it to be so stupid. So I hate that. But the thing I love, especially during the playoffs, they start wiring the coach up, and they, they even will start showing you some behind-the-scenes stuff. You start to see kind of what happens in the locker room. And there was this great moment this year when uh, the Suns were down three games to two in the finals, and Monty Williams was saying, hey, we're okay. We're hanging in there. And he had this line in one of these behind the scenes things that I saw and I was like this is absolutely amazing everything you want is on the other side of hard oh man come on now if you have any kind of athlete in you or coach in you it's like yes Monty preach it that is amazing um, but you would have never heard that and I guess this was like a, a slogan that he'd been t- teaching them all year long hey listen guys everything you want is on the other side of hard and and you got access to that because you got to see the behind the scenes you got invited into the locker room that's not the mid-game nonsense this is like the real deal well in this particular passage in John chapter 13 uh, we're invited into the locker room Up to this point, Jesus has been teaching and preaching publicly. He's been doing signs that have been saying, hey, here's what life looks like when the kingdom of God breaks into the kingdom of this world. And he's been inviting people and calling people and saying, hey, believe in me. I'm the light of the world. I don't want you to walk in darkness anymore. But now in chapter 13, and really from here on, especially chapter 13 to chapter 17, this is known as the the upper room discourse. This is Jesus dining with his disciples as he prepares to go to the cross. This is the locker room. This is the behind the scenes kind of a deal. And what's interesting as Jesus does this is what you see in these next number of chapters is Jesus is preparing his disciples to go into the world. That's what this is. It's preparing the disciples to go into the world. Actually, the word world appears 40 times in these chapters, 13 to 17. 40 times. Why? Because here's the reality. We are not just saved by Jesus to go to heaven. We are saved by Jesus to go to the world with heaven. That's what, that's what we're to do. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples. He's encouraging them. He's teaching them. He's training them. He's saying, listen, guys, I'm about to go to the cross, and I'm about to die, and I'm about to be buried, and I'm going to raise, and I'm going to ascend to the Father, and y'all are the plan A, and there's no plan B. So here's what you need to know. And so we're invited into this behind-the-scenes 
uh, thing. And so it just makes sense to me uh, that, that John, who was a follower of Jesus, one of Jesus' closest friends, he's writing now about this moment. And, and, and John knows as he writes, he, all the scholars agree, he was the last of the four Gospels to write. So he, he knows about Matthew and Mark and Luke. And now here he is, and he's, he's letting us in. You know, Jesus is wired for sound. And he's saying, here's what I want you to see. And as, as John reflects on what Jesus did in that locker room time, he, he recalls, and this is what we're going to see in this passage, is that Jesus begins by, by showing, here's what it is to be a disciple. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. A disciple, by the way, that word just means a follower. Right? You're a disciple of Jesus if you're in the following Jesus line. Are you in that line? Sometimes I think we imagine that disciples are like the, they're the Navy SEAL Christians that are in the front of the line. But if you're in the line, whether you're the first person in the line or the back of the line, you're a disciple. And this passage tells us what it is to be a disciple. We're going to look at four different things this text shows us about what it means to be a disciple. So let's pray and, uh, and we'll get to it. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, inviting us in and showing us uh, what it is to follow you. And God, we ask now that you would give us the ability to hear your word. God, I, I want to be a faithful disciple. I want to be a, a disciple who's shaped by you. I want to be a disciple who's sent into the world by your spirit. So God, I, I know that so many others here want that too. And so I pray that you would give us your grace as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the first lesson about being a disciple is that being a disciple means you are loved all the way. You're loved all the way. If you have your Bible, uh, verse 1 of chapter 13 really kind of provides the topic sentence of this whole section. It's uh, John's sort of introduction to everything that is going to be uh, about to happen. It says this, now before the feast of the Passover, so he mentions the Passover. Why? Because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just like the Passover commemorates that the people of Israel had been released from slavery in Egypt, Jesus is going to die on Passover as a picture of how his people are released from slavery to sin. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, uh, this book, John, has been talking over and over about this hour. All throughout it, Jesus said, my hour has not come, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. Only in chapter 12 did he say, hey, my hour has now come. And he knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the end. Not just this passage, but everything that follows is John saying, I knew this man. I love this man, I followed this man, and what I saw him do from this moment on was love us to the end. Some of you know what this is like. Some of you stood in a church building or maybe on a golf course or maybe in a court and you made vows to your spouse. You said something to the effect of in sickness and in health till death do us part. And when you made those vows, you probably had no idea how real that would be. But some of you have lived that. And you've cared for a spouse as their mind began to drift. Even a spouse who 
you once shared such closeness with who's in the throes of dementia kind of turned against you. Some of you have done just really gross things as you've cared for the person you made that vow to. And some of you, you've been there and you've held their hand. You've squeezed and you've prayed. And you've, in a way, sacrificed months, sometimes years of your life. Because you love them to the end. This is what Jesus does. This is not a halfway love. This is not a for now love. This is not a while it's convenient or a until something better comes along love. The love of Jesus loves us to the end. The the Jesus Storybook Bible, I love the vision it gives to children of, of God's love. It says God's love is a never stopping, never failing, always and forever love. That's the love of Jesus for us if we're in Christ. He loves us to the end. And I just think it is so beautiful that, that the way that John recalls what it means to be a disciple is that you start with an affirmation of God's love for you. This is not about what you do for God in order to be loved. But he loves you at the outset from the beginning to the end. And, and John, even as he recalls this, the way he writes this is you can tell that John is remembering every little detail. Uh, verse three uh, really is sort of describing in, uh, in detail the way that Jesus loved. It, it's almost like if, if you were a, a cinematographer, this is the part of the scene where it slows down and it's slow motion and it's zooming in. Look at verse three. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands, and then he'd come from God and was going back to God. We'll get to that later. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. Taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. All these years later, John can still see it in his mind's eye. And this was a staggering move of Jesus because only slaves would be the ones who would wash feet. And Jesus, who's the Lord and the master, they've, they've sat down, they're, they're ready to have this meal. Nobody's washed the feet. And Jesus, of all people, the one who shouldn't be stooping in the place of a slave, he's the one who does this. And it is seared. In John's memory, he loved us to the end. Isn't it good news, friends? That we are loved to the end by Jesus. He doesn't love us 90%. We gotta earn the other 10. It's all the way. Being a disciple means you're loved all the way. The second lesson on being a disciple is similar. It's that you must let Jesus serve you. Being a disciple means you must let Jesus serve you. Now, this seems strange, as I said, because you'd think, well, Jesus is the one who should be served. He's the Lord. He's the teacher. He's the master. We should be serving him. And in fact, he uses that very language in verse 16. In verse 16, he says, we're servants. He says, a servant isn't greater than his master. And so everything appropriate would be that we should serve God. And maybe you kind of grew up in an understanding of that, that what religion was about was about you serving God. 
about you loving God, about you praising God, about you doing all these good things for God. But the lesson on discipleship begins by saying, no, 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 no. If you're going to be a disciple, you must let Jesus serve you. It says in verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? I mean, you just hear the like, no way. Jesus answered him, what I'm doing to you, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Now, uh, Peter has a bit of a history of bossing Jesus around. Right? I just think it's really funny. Jesus is like, hey, you're not going to understand this. And he's like, oh, I understand it, right? It reminded me of this cartoon that I saw uh, recently. Uh, let me, uh, here's what the cartoon uh, says. Let me interrupt your expertise with my confidence. Uh, you ever been on one of the sides of that? Some of you have been on both sides of that conversation, right? That's what's going on. Je Peter's interrupting Jesus' expertise with his confidence. You'll never wash my feet. I'll, I'll never let this happen. This is actually what Peter does quite a bit. There's another place in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus has been asking the disciples about his reputation. He says, who do all these people say that I am? And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Ding, ding, ding. That's correct. Good job, Peter. You got it. Look at the, that words. You are the Christ. You're the anointed one, the son of the living God. And then just a couple verses later, Jesus says, well, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Isn't that just like us? Oh, yes, you're the son of the living God. But let me tell you how this is going to work, right? That's what Peter's doing. And this is what it's like. Peter just constantly does this. And, and, and look at Jesus' answer to him when Peter says in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him and said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, this word share in the original language is a word that's describing a portion of an inheritance. In other words, your inheritance, your portion, your share in the kingdom of God is entirely dependent on Jesus washing you. It's not dependent on your ability to earn a share. It's on receiving the share he wants to give you. And so Simon, I mean, this is very typical Simon, verse nine, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I want a triple share. <laughs> give me the whole thing. If we're gonna be a disciple of Jesus, we have to let Jesus serve us. Listen, you can't earn it. You can't deserve it. This is key. You can't repay it. It's grace. You must receive it. If you think, well, I got to earn it. I got to, I got to, Make sure that I do the right things and I got to avoid the wrong things and, you know, someone's keeping track of what I'm doing. Then listen, you're not in the following Jesus line. You're in the every other religion of self-effort line. But this line is you can't earn it. You just have to receive it. It's a gift. You must let Jesus serve you. Think about this. Jesus loves us to the end and he is committed to cleaning us up. That's good news. 
Here's a third lesson about being a disciple. This is where it gets a little harder. Number three, being a disciple means you're called to imitate the humility of Jesus. Jesus uh, finishes doing what he did, and then it says in verse 12, when he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he says, okay, we're going to debrief this. Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So the order is really important. We start by being loved by Jesus. We begin by being cleaned by Jesus. And after that's happened, now he calls us to go love like he does, to imitate his humility. That's the word that, that comes out in verse 15. For I have given you an example. The word literally means a pattern. Uh, my uh, third daughter, Mary, she's uh, real artistic, and we'll just sometimes like, be in the house and be like, has anybody seen Mary? And we find her in some room and she's coloring or drawing or building or doing something like that. And there's this, uh, there's this YouTube site, Art for, Art for Kids Hub, that uh, we let her watch. And um, it's just really, really great. It's this awesome dad and he always has one of his kids on there and they just draw stuff. Here's how you draw a cheeseburger and here's how you draw a computer and here's how you draw these characters. And, and it's really cool. And, and what you find is like what he's doing is he's giving you, here's the pattern. Here's how to do this. Imitate this. Follow this example. And so we have all these pictures all over our house in Sharpie of computers and cheeseburgers and everything else because she's following the pattern. That's what Jesus is saying. Okay, I've loved you. I've, I've humbled myself to serve you. Now you do that to one another. That's hard. Isn't that hard? There's four reasons why it's hard. The first is it's hard to serve one another. Look at verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, if it had said, you also ought to wash my feet, they'd have like been pulling hamstrings to get in line to, to wash Jesus' feet. Oh, let me show you my devotion, Lord. But it's like, no, 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 I don't want you to wash my feet. I want you to wash each other's feet. And you ever had siblings, right? And it's like, you're just the nicest, kindest person to everyone in the world except them, right? And isn't this hard? I mean, because look, look, foot washing's low. I mean, I, I, I don't know you, I'd be like, I don't want anyone touching my feet. That, ugh, gross. Nor do I want to touch someone else's feet. I might do it for Jesus. But for him? For her? Ugh. And, and, and it gets worse. Because we're not just supposed to love this way for one another, but we're supposed to love like Jesus did, which means it's hard to serve your enemies. I don't want you to miss verse 2. I think verse 2 is absolutely profound and essential in understanding this story. Look at verse 2. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, that he'd come from God, he rose, he 
put on this on, and he washed their feet. Whoa, 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 wait. Wait a minute. Are you saying that Jesus washed Judas' feet too? Yep. Judas is in on this whole thing. The devil has already put it in his heart in verse 2. In verse 29, what we're going to find out is that then the devil actually fully possesses Judas and Judas leaves. But at this point, we're kind of in this middle ground where this idea, this satanic idea to betray Jesus is in the heart of Judas. And despite the fact that Jesus knows Judas will betray him, he serves him. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of imagine that if I were Jesus, I'd want to be kind of digging between the toes and just giving a little fingernail here and there. Like, I'm going to make him feel that. But verse 22, Jesus will say, after this, he'll say, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And they're not like, oh, it must be Judas because his feet are bleeding. <laughs> they don't have any idea. They don't know who it's going to be. They're like, is it me? Is it me? They don't know. Right, and it just in God's providence, I, I, finished, you know, I, I finished preparing the sermon on Thursday. Friday morning, I go into this place, and in walks a guy who has slandered me, falsely accused me, done a great deal of damage to me and to other people I love with his sin. He walks in. Hey, Luke. And it was like, Lord, I wouldn't want to wash his feet. I might want to break his feet. But this is hard. This is hard. I mean, it's wonderful in theory. It's really hard to forgive the people who have hurt you, will hurt you, do hurt you, to love them to serve them. Now, I, I do want to provide one clarification because I know that there are some of you who are in abusive situations, which is really different than this. I mean, what Jesus is doing, Jesus is the powerful one who's becoming the powerless one and serving that way. That's very different than someone who is in power demanding that those underneath serve them like a slave. And so what I want to tell you is if you're kind of in an abusive situation and you're thinking like, oh man, this is Jesus calling me to just keep being abused and to just kind of hang in there and just to take another one. That is, that is not what this passage would tell us. I think what this passage would tell us that is that one of the ways you would love an abuser is by doing everything you can, and I realize when you're in that situation, there's not a lot you can do sometimes, but doing everything you can do to try to make it stop. Getting legal authorities involved, giving spiritual authorities involved, because it is not loving to let someone continue to abuse you. And again, this isn't your fault, but it's, it's devastating to the abuser, just like it's devastating to you. And I think it's interesting, even in this text, that what you see is the grace and truth of Jesus. Jesus is showing grace by washing Judas' feet, but three different times he makes it clear, not every one of you is clean. Verse, verse 10, verse 11, not all of you are clean. Verse 18, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture is fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, and he knows that Judas knows 
And it's a warning to Judas. And it's a chance for Judas to maybe turn away from this path. Jesus responds with truth and grace. And so I, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not, if you're in an abusive situation, I'm not saying just snap your fingers and just get out of it. If you could, you would. But what I am telling you is don't let this passage be weaponized against you to allow your abuser to keep abusing you. The principle of love your enemies is all over the New Testament. It's really, really hard. A third piece that's hard in imitating the humility of Jesus is it's hard to take the posture of a servant. As I said, verse 16, that's the title Jesus gives us. I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And, and that's hard, isn't it? To think of yourself as a servant. Like we want the throne and Jesus says, here's a towel. You know, one pastor I heard years ago say, everyone likes the idea of being a servant until they're treated like one. That's true. And, and I look at it and go, okay, uh, okay, Jesus, you're the teacher and the Lord and the master. Got it. I don't, I don't need to be that. But is there like middle management? Could I be some, like servant? That's so low. And that's the posture Jesus says we're to have. Not bowing up, not demanding, serving. And it's hard to keep doing it. That's the fourth way it's hard. It's hard. Verse 17, if you know these things, Jesus says, blessed are you if you do them. Now, that word do in the original language is a present tense word, which what that means is, this is not saying blessed are you if you do it once, but blessed are you if you continue doing it. If this becomes your lifestyle, if this becomes your way of operating is to serve and to love and to take the low place. That's really hard. It, it's, it's okay to do it once, but to do it over and over and over, to keep caring for your loved one with dementia, to keep showing up week after week to mentor seventh grade boys. It's hard. To keep being kind to your ungrateful spouse. To keep coming in early on Sunday morning to brew coffee, set up A-frame signs and clean things up. To do that week after week after week. To keep cleaning up after your family. Any amens out here? Don't say it too loud. They're sitting next to you. To keep hosting a small group in your home. Cleaning up, preparing week after week after week. See, all these little examples are just ways that we serve. And it's just hard to keep that going. At some point you go like, I feel like I've kind of paid it off and I'd like to live for me now. But even think about it, that's not the way this whole thing works. You can't pay it off. And if you're serving to pay it off, you're not imitating Jesus. By the way, I think this is one of the reasons why we need to actually commit when we can, two moments of service. Because if we just sort of rely on in the moment I'm going to serve, we tend to not serve, right? And so this is why I, I would just say for everyone who would call our church home, one of my hopes for you as a disciple is that at some point you would decide, okay, I'm going to serve here. I'm going to have something where everyone's going, okay, we're counting on you for this. 
Or the way we've talked about it over the years is that is in any large family, there's a fridge, and on the fridge is a list of who's doing what. Why? Because if you don't have the list, everyone's like, well, they'll do it. Mom will do it. And the same thing's true in a larger church. And so we just go like, hey, we, we need your name on the fridge, whether it's serving in a kid's ministry, whether it's uh, handing out programs, maybe it's, it's prepping communion, maybe it's hosting a group in your home, maybe it's uh, serving and leading a daytime group for senior adults, whatever it is. These, these ways of serving are these ways of actually disciplining yourself to go, it's hard to keep serving. God, help me. I'm going to keep going. We're called to imitate the humility of Jesus. But it's so hard. In fact, I, I, even, I feel it even in the room now. And I feel it a little bit in me. It's like the first two things you're like, okay, being a disciple means your love to the end. Yes, oh, that feels good. Being a disciple means you let Jesus serve you. Yes, oh, I can't do anything. This is so great, right? You kind of hear those first two points and your chest is out a little bit, not because you're great, but you're just like, yes, Lord, you're so good. And then you get to the third point. You have to imitate Jesus. And it's like, oh gosh, I know I should want to, but I kind of don't want to. At least I do once in a while, but not a lot. Okay, Lord, I'll try. Not really, but I'll try. I'll tell you I'll try. Like, Do you feel a little deflated even as you think about that? Like, gosh, how am I going to do that? And so the question that I have is, where did Jesus draw the strength to do it? And if you just go, well, he was God, that's too easy. Because Jesus is the word made flesh. He is God in a human body. He's depending on the Father. So how does Jesus find the resource to serve like this? Because I think if we can understand that, then there's actually some hope for us. All right, so here's the fourth lesson from this text, is that being a disciple of Jesus means you must continually remember who you really are. Who are you? What is your identity? Who are you at your core? Jesus was able to serve because he was aware of his rock solid identity in God. Now get this, I didn't say his rock solid identity as God, though he is God. But in his humanity, he's depending on the Father. And he's remembering some really important things and I don't want us to miss it because our only chance to go love like Jesus is if we remember who we really are. Look at verse three. This is after the devil's already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot. And verse three says this, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Think about this. Jesus knew what he had. He had all things in his hands. That, he knew what he had, so he's secure. Jesus knew where he came from. It says he had come from God. He, he knew who he truly was. He knew what he was about. He knew his origin story. He knew what had shaped and formed him. And he knew where he was going. He was going back to God. Nothing that was going to happen could strip him of that identity. Even being on the cross, mocked, beaten, scorned, shamed. He knew that's not the end of my story. I'm gonna rise. I'm gonna ascend to the right hand of the Father. Therefore, I, I have everything I need. 
I can serve. I don't have anyone to, anything to prove. I don't have anyone I have to impress. Listen, we struggle because so often we are working for an identity. Jesus is working from an identity. He's saying, I, I'm, I'm secure. I'm okay. I don't need to earn anything. I'm not doing this to be impressive. One day, maybe a couple years ago, I was after the service, I often do say, hey, if you're new, I'd love to meet you. And, and uh, standing over there in the corner and, and up came this guy. And he said, hey, uh, I'm, my name's Bob. I'm from Washington. And uh, I'm down here for kind of some work stuff. But I just you know, was here today and just wanted to say I'm thankful for your guys' ministry. And Oh, cool, great. But you're here for work. What do you do? He says, oh, well, I work for uh, a company called Faith Life. I said, oh, Faith Life. They, they make the Bible study software that I use to prepare that sermon. He goes, oh, cool. You use that? Oh, that's cool. Yeah, well, I'm just down here for a few days and blah, blah, blah. And off he went. Well, a little bit later, so we have some guys that work for that company. They, they sell the Bible software that, gosh, I mean, I just thank God for Logos Bible software. It helps me so much. And uh, one, of the, one of the sales guys was like, hey, so you met Bob. And I was like, yeah, see my really cool guy. He said, do you know who that is? I said, well, he said his name was Bob. <laughs> he said, well, that's Bob, the founder and CEO of Logos. He's the guy that wrote the software you use. I was like, what? That dirty dog. He didn't tell me that. And you know, I thought like, he was securing who he was. Right, a lot of us would be like, oh, you use that software? You know I wrote that? And I don't know that I even would have faulted him if he told me that. I kind of would have liked to have known, and I would have wanted to thank him. But, but pretty cool that he didn't need to do that. Listen, if we know who we are, then we're not grasping. We're not clamoring. We're not proving. We have everything we need, and so now I'm free. I'm free to just love. So do you know who you are if you're in Christ? If you're in the following Jesus line, I just want to remind you who God says you are. This is not an exhaustive list, but boy, is it an encouraging list. If you trust Christ, if I trust Christ, I'm a child of God. I'm a friend of Jesus. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm not condemned by God. I'm no longer a slave, but I'm a son. I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's who you are if you're in Christ. That's who you are. That's who God says you are. Who else? Well, you're chosen, holy, and blameless before God. You've been made alive with Christ. You are God's workmanship created to do good works. You have access to God. You're a citizen of heaven. God supplies all your needs and you've been made complete in Christ. Listen, that's who we are, church. And, and not one of those things is because of us. It's because of him. It's his grace. It's his love. He's loved us to the end, and to the degree we can remember that. This is why we take communion every week. To the degree we can remember that. Well, now we're free. free freedom's not having no rules around you. Freedom is being secure in Christ to serve and to love. That's what it means to be his disciple. Let's pray.
Lord, you're good to us. So, so good. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for your loving us to the end. Lord, we need that reminder. So often our failures make us think that you couldn't love us anymore or even at all. And so we thank you that you love us, that you show it, and that you're always good. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.